ESPN is showing disrespect to those Tennessee Vols once again. Just wouldn't you know it. Welcome into the Volunteer State. Tennessee's spring game is behind us. We may get into a little bit of that today, but interestingly, ESPN's latest FPI is out this week, and we want to discuss where they have Tennessee and maybe why they aren't giving Tennessee quite as much respect as what some people are. Uh, welcome in. This is the Volunteer State from the Knoxville News Sentinel. I'm Blake Topmeyer with Mike Wilson, Adam Sparks on assignment this week up in Cincinnati covering the NCAA case, the Committee on Infractions gatherings up there trying to gather whatever morsels of information he can he can claim and they'll be over at knoxnews.com john adams is traveling the countryside so we're pleased to be joined with mike who was with me at the spring game saturday at neyland stadium mike i want to get into this fpi stuff but uh first i know you and i have similar feelings on spring games they're um in many ways much ado about nothing we oftentimes can overreact to a spring game or fans can based on what we see. Really, it's one practice out of 15 practices. Good crowd there. The, the $5 admission did not deter anyone. But aside from the fact that fans seem to be really excited about Tennessee football right now based on the attendance, did you glean any pressing observations from the spring game? Yeah, I mean, my feelings towards spring games are pretty much the same as me being your like fourth choice on this podcast today. Um, but like that, that's pretty much about that same same level of interest. Yeah, spring games in my line has always been there the, the second worst day of the year for for journalism um, behind pro day because pro day is just go watch some people run and uh, you know, hey, did you train for the cones? What did you do to train for the three cone? Uh, just very, very silly day. But yeah, Tennessee spring game featured not its top running backs, not its top wide receivers, its top quarterbacks played. Defense was out there. It's just impossible to gain because the team wins and loses at the same time. Um, I did think Caleb Webb looked nice, uh, wide receiver, guy who made the most that opportunity with the top four wide receivers out. Um, I thought the running backs to Sean Bishop. Um, and I'm blanking on the other name right now for some reason. Uh, 23, also a freshman. Help me yes, out. Cam Cameron Selden. Cameron, Cameron Selden. Selden. There we Cameron go. Cameron Selden and Deshaun Bishop. Yes. And Selden being a guy that came in kind of as an athlete with a lot of speed and ability that Tennessee has slotted in at running back. I thought both of them were really good. Didn't love the O-line. Um, defense was, was fine. I, I thought – Danico Slaughter was a guy that probably played well when he needs to um, as a cornerback. But all of this probably means nothing come the fall um, because that's at the point where Tennessee plays other teams and guys like Cameron Selden and Deshaun Bishop might not be in the mix. So <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's it's like a rite of passage every spring. Somebody's going to lead the team in rushing that then gets 12 carries the following fall. Uh, of all the guys to sit out spring games, it seems like running backs are among the most common. And yeah, they were among the guys sitting out. For Tennessee, you touched on the quarterbacks. I mean, really on down the line, three quarterbacks played. They all looked good. I, I wrote that if you wandered into Neyland Stadium and you didn't knew nothing about this team, you knew nothing about the depth chart, at different moments in the day, you probably could have been convinced that any one of those three guys uh, was Tennessee's starting quarterback. Uh, I mean, even walk-on third stringer Gaston Moore played well. But the reality is nothing really changes about Tennessee's pecking order at quarterback. Joe Milton certainly did enough this spring that he's in the driver's seat for the job. Uh, Nico 
Nico Iamaliava, still trying to nail that that last name, but feel like I'm getting better with each time. But uh, Nico looked pretty good in the in the spring game as well, and and Gaston Moore had his moments. But again, the upshot there is um, no change in in Tennessee's pecking order. Nico's task is is to get ready uh, to be Joe Milton's wingman uh, to whatever extent he is needed this fall. All right, so I teased the FPI in the open. Mike, that that their their latest from ESPN is out this week, and of course I mentioned the ESPN bias. Certain Tennessee fans will forever feel uh, that the mothership out there in Bristol is is out to get the Vols. Of course, there's about a hundred fan bases that that think that, but that that feeling is alive and well at, ten, at Tennessee. In the FPI, some of the particulars here: Tennessee is ranked twelfth in their power index, which I'm going to say is the equivalent of their poll. They're not taking rankings from human beings, but their power index has Tennessee at 12. Their projected win total is at 8.2 wins in the regular season. So let's call it eight and four. 8.2 wins translates to eight and four. The FPI gives Tennessee a 5% chance of winning the East Division. It gives it a 2.5% chance of making the college football playoff. In general, snub undervalued, spot on. What's your, your gut reaction there? Yeah. I mean, going eight and four and being 12th is interesting in theory. I don't think that's kind of the normal slot for, for an eight and four team, but um, calling last season, what it was, Tennessee had a magical season and overachieved. I think you'd have to look at it. Um, it would have been hard to predict a, a Heisman candidate quarterback, a Blitnikoff winning wide receiver, um, you also could argue that Tennessee underachieved given its performance against South Carolina, where you win that game, you might've been in the playoff. So you can kind of go both ways with it. But then when you look ahead to this season, you do see some uncertainty at, at the skill positions. Um, wide receiver, especially turned over a lot. Um, you don't really know if the defense is actually going to be better or not. You'd like to think so given some of the additions and everything, but I mean, it feels about right. I mean, you look at what Tennessee's got in the schedule, um, They've got AM as the crossover this year, so that kind of ratchets up a little bit. Um, you've got to go to Tuscaloosa. Um, you've got Georgia on the schedule every year, as you expect. You've got to go to Florida. Um, and Tennessee won a lot of close games last year, which is what you have to do to be in the mix for a division, a playoff, all of those things. And to me, this says they're betting that Tennessee doesn't quite strike lightning as often as it did last year. Yeah, I think you touched on a couple key points uh, per, with the wide receivers and, and Jalen Highland in particular. I think because Tennessee won the Orange Bowl uh, and beat a, let's call it a good, not great Clemson team, but certainly a name brand, the feeling after that was, well, Tennessee's offense is going to be fine. You know, they lose Hendon Hooker, they lose Jalen Hyatt, but those guys didn't play in the Orange Bowl. And look, they went out and beat Clemson. Um, and I think we were all guilty of that to, to some extent. But now that we have a little a little pause, a few months in the rearview mirror now, I think we can say that Tennessee's offense is going to be fine. It's going to be good as long as Josh Heupel's the coach. I think Tennessee's going to score points. Um, does that mean it's going to be as good as last year? I'm a little skeptical of that. I think Joe Milton's going, going to uh, keep this offense humming. I don't know. I, I don't think he's going to be able to keep it humming to the level that Hinton Hooker did. I don't know that there are many quarterbacks who, who could. As you said, Hinton Hooker had a... A, a Heisman um, contender caliber season. You take out Jalen Hyatt out of the mix. You take out Darnell Wright. 
who's probably a, a, a first round NFL draft offensive tackle. I, I think there are some departures where, you know, maybe the, the, the gut reaction is to say like, yeah, the offense is going to be fine. They won't skip a beat under Joe Milton, but they might skip just a little bit of a beat. Okay. If the offense is still good, but not quite as prolific, is the defense improved enough to pick up the slack? And as you said, that's really a lingering question mark. I, I would probably lean toward nine and three with the Vols. I'm not outraged or offended or, or think this is some you know crack pole here that has him an eight and four. I, I would lean toward nine and three. If you were projecting out, do you do you feel like this eight and fours is about right, or, or do you think maybe that's a, a little bit of an undersell or oversell? I mean. When you look at the list of rankings, they have Alabama and Georgia ahead of Tennessee. So those are two of the losses they're presumably predicting. Um, but it is interesting. Those are the only two on Tennessee's schedule ranked ahead of them. Florida comes in a few spots behind. Um, so I'm guessing that's also one of those games. Kentucky is about 10 spots behind, 10, 15 spots behind. So I don't know what the four losses being predicted are. Um that that's probably an interesting element of that. A and M is right behind Florida, so A and M's in that mix as well. But yeah, it's it's interesting because I look I'm looking at it right now. In Florida, they've got it seven and five. So are you predicting a, a Florida win? I would probably lean nine and three too. I do think there's going to be hiccups with Joe Milton just because he's had some inconsistencies through his career that we, we documented the overthrows and some of that stuff, which you didn't see much of that against Clemson, which is obviously why you're putting confidence in him. I would double down on Clemson saying that was not a very impressive Clemson team. Uh, what Tennessee did defensively to Cade Klubnik was incredibly impressive. Uh, but Cade Klubnik also was starting, I think starting his first career game. I don't remember if he started the ACC title game, but he played most of it if he didn't start it. Um, so you're putting a lot of stock in, in what the team was there, but nine and three feels more apt. I think looking at the, the early schedule, um, but there are four or five games in there that are tough. I don't buy Kentucky without Will Levis. South Carolina is interesting just because of what they did last year and returning a lot. So yeah, I, all this rambling to say nine and three feels better to me than eight and four. Yeah. There are a few, a few important swing games, no doubt. And, and, you know, Texas A&M at home is a big one. I think A&M is going to be much improved. What does much improved actually translate to? I don't know. I don't think they're going to be the, the five and seven debacle. They were last season. Um, Jimbo Fisher made a lot of missteps, uh, and, and how I, I think assembled that team in the offseason last year. He should have gone a little heavier in the portal, added some more veterans. Um, there were also some things a little bit beyond AM's control. They had injuries, they were a young team. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, they, they made some steps to address some of this, particularly with the addition of Bobby Petrino. How well will that marriage work? We'll see. But just in terms of the guy's resume, Bobby Petrino does no offense. I think uh, he has the potential to to iron out some of the problems uh, A&M was facing there. So I think that's a, a, an important swing game. You mentioned South Carolina, Tennessee's fortunate, I think, to have that one at home. Florida's an interesting one. As I look through the FPI here, you know, I don't see too many crazy things at the top. I mean, they have Ohio State 1, Alabama 2, Georgia 3, LSU 4. I would have some of that scrambled a little bit. I would have Alabama behind Georgia LSU. But whatever, these are the computers at work. I don't think there's anything too out of left field other than Alabama at two. Feels a bit high to me. But as you cycle down through some of the, the lists here, you know, just looking for anomalies, 
Florida really stands out to me. They have them at number 18 in, in their power rankings. It's like, what are their computers seeing about Florida that I'm just not seeing? Uh, you know, Billy Napier inherited a program that was thin in the cupboard, I, I think, on a, 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 especially as what you would expect for Florida. Their quarterback situation looks pretty bleak. I know I said at the top, don't put too much stock in the spring game, but if you watch Florida's spring game, there was no reason to be encouraged about their quarterback position. That one that one feels out of place to see Florida at 18, and, and maybe that's, as you said, maybe that's why the FPI goes more with 8-4 and four for Tennessee um, than looking at that road game against Florida. Maybe, maybe ESPN is, is valuing Florida more than, than I do. What, what do you think about the top there? Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, LSU, and Texas. One, one thing that jumps out to me is when you think about Texas coming into the SEC in 2024, you know, if we start to count them as, as an SEC member, that's four of the top five being SEC teams. Yeah, I would note on Florida too, it's interesting with them predicted at 6.8 wins. The next team with 6.8 is Arkansas at 30. Um, everyone else in there is projected with seven or eight um, or the high eights in the case of Oregon State in there. So it's, it's interesting that Florida's at 18, despite being predicted to go seven and five or six and six. Um, so curious on that. I think Ohio State, to me, they're figuring out their quarterback situation, but they always seem to get good quarterback play. Um, and they got, again, spring game, but they got good quarterback play in the spring game, I thought. Um, not surprised they're number one. I agree um, with Alabama, Georgia, LSU. That probably needs to be shuffled. I don't know in what order I would go at this juncture just because I don't fully buy Alabama's quarterback situation yet. I also know that I buy Georgia's quarterback situation yet either. Um, Beck seems to be the guy there, but again, I don't know that I buy it. Um, what Stetson Bennett did is why Georgia was so successful beyond having, you know, first on NFL draft picks at every single position in the two deep. Um, what Stetson Bennett did there was, was absolutely paramount to their success uh, the past few seasons. LSU is intriguing to me, especially the way that last season finished. Um, Jaden Daniels back, all of that. So I might feel comfortable LSU at two even. Um, but yeah, those that shuffle there would be interesting to me, but I do think it's it's clear that everyone's kind of right behind Ohio State at this early point. And then, you know, some of the, the percentages on the division stand out to me too. When you combine Alabama and LSU, they account for about a 95% chance to win the West. Uh, you know, you're taking some of the human bias out of this and and you you set the formulas to work here and still they're spitting out a 95% chance that one of those two teams win the West. And then you look at the East, the ESPN FPI gives Georgia a 90% chance, 89 and a half to be exact, 89 and a half percent chance for Georgia to win the East. And, and Tennessee's the only the only team, you know, otherwise really with a prayer, according to this FPI at, at 5.4%. I, I do feel like that's sort of fair, though. I mean, you know, they're drawing the line of saying it, when it comes to who's going to be in Atlanta, it's going to be two of, of four teams. It's either Alabama or LSU out of the West. It's either Georgia or Tennessee out of the East. I think that's pretty fair. I also think it speaks to whenever divisions go away, in this conference when Oklahoma and Texas join in, in 2024 could make for a more exciting conference race because already here in the preseason, we're saying there's only two teams that can probably win the West and there's only two teams that can win the East. And I feel like that's, that's pretty fair. I think the, the debate gets a little spicier 
when you have a 16 team league with no divisions. What do you think about that? I think that's true as well. Um, and I understand where those percenters are. I also would say, by the way, Michigan's very interesting to me at number six. Uh, Jim Harbaugh's got a really nice team coming back there. But as far as the SEC goes, it's kind of the same thing it was last year. It did really shake out where heading into November, it was Tennessee or Georgia. Um, and LSU obviously was coming on strong there. A&M was floundering, so they weren't really in the mix at that point. So it kind of feels like it's that same same field as last year um, in terms of the teams that can get there from the SEC. Um, so I think it's right. I mean, but what you're saying about the divisions is interesting. As those things shuffle, it's going to be so much more dependent on the way your schedule falls in terms of who you're going to be, what these projections are going to look like. Um, it's going to have such a different impact because um, I don't know how you balance that that hierarchy for those crossover, whatever you're going to call them, games at that point. Um, you're going to probably, I guess, if I was in charge, have a tier one, tier two, tier three of, of opponents and try to get each team pulled out of those pools. But um, there's going to be an imbalance there at points that's going to dictate a lot of this as well, uh, just in terms of preseason projections, what things are going to be. I mean, we talked about it earlier right now with Tennessee. A&M as a crossover is tough. Going to Baton Rouge last year was tough too. Tennessee caught LSU when it wasn't very good um, and, and pounded the Tigers in Baton Rouge. But yeah, so much of what Tennessee has is schedule dependent, given that every year they have Florida, Georgia, Alabama. The, the crossover plays a long way into that uh, as it stands, and it will continue to do so even once divisions are gone. Yeah, what you're alluding to there, if, if they approve that nine-game schedule format that's been much discussed with your three annual rivals, so much of the attention is on the three annual rivals, and I get that. That's fun debate, and and um, you know, you want to know who your rivals are going to be, which ones you can keep going every year, which ones are, are going to die off a little bit. But as you say, um, you know, your your ceiling potential a lot of times is going to come down to what about the other six teams out of that nine game slate? How strong are they in a particular year? I do think the SEC is going to take steps to try to balance that out uh, to where you're not playing, um, you know, the four strong the four historically strongest teams in the league one year and, and none of those four the next. But you know, as these things have been flow, there, there's never any any guarantee of what a team's going to be. Um, so I guess the saving grace is, I think, getting to Atlanta, although it's important for the first round bye in a 12-team playoff, you have to be a conference champion to get the bye. It isn't as paramount to making the playoff. You know, if you get a tough schedule draw one year, you don't make it to Atlanta, you go nine and three. You still get an at-large spot, and and you're in the, uh, and, and you're in the playoffs. Before we move on here, Mike, um, I mentioned those those four teams: Alabama, LSU, Tennessee, Georgia, accounting for ninety five percent chance to win the division on each side. If you were to throw out one outlier and say, if it, if if some team, unlikely though it may be, is going to get to Atlanta, that's not one of those four. A&M maybe jumps out at me just because of the talent level, the potential. That's a reach. I don't feel much conviction in it. Would you go a different direction or or, or you're just not even entertaining this debate because it's going to be one of those four or two of those four in Atlanta? It should be should be two of those four, I think, certainly. Uh, you'd With some of the uncertainty at Georgia with quarterback, you'd love to say Florida, but Florida's quarterback situation is even more unsettled and, and terrible. I think you see why the, the Rashada situation was so – interesting at Florida because they needed maybe that talent in there to, to throw another guy in the mix. I'd say Ole Miss um, just because Lane, man, um, with the offense, the things that Lane Kiffin does, um, they ran the ball so well last year. And I 
think they're returning a lot of that talent, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, Zach Evans was tremendous. A lot of guys in that backfield last year, though. So, um, and Lane's ability to have a quarterback that does it consistently, that roster is going to be interesting um, to me. And that's kind of one of those ones, though. You win the right game, you might be tied at the end of the year at the top of that division. You own the tiebreaker. So I think there's that possibility there where Ole Miss could be that that outside team uh, that sneaks in there. Yeah, I, I have lingering concerns with Ole Miss's defense, but one, but one point in their favor is I do think the schedule breaks reasonably well for them this year. They get LSU at home, Texas A&M at home, Arkansas at home. Those are three important swing games, I think, for them. Obviously, Alabama is always huge to the division race, and that will be uh, on the road. But still, those other three are, are, are biggies, LSU, A&M, and Arkansas, and, and all three of those are set to be in Oxford. Uh, Mike, while I have you here, since uh, you know the fourth choice uh, did come through from from fourth string to uh, to first string here on on the pod, uh, you are the the Knox News resident baseball expert, along with the the many many other things you do in covering the Vols. Uh, you are the main man there in covering the baseball team, and a lot of attention on baseball right now. I think in terms of what happened to these guys. You know, it's Tony V's crew coming off of the um, the special season that ended short of, of Omaha uh, in disappointing fashion, but still a special season nonetheless. High expectations yet again this year. And, and as you wrote, uh, after a disappointing series at Arkansas over the weekend, now even the NCAA tournament has been called into question for a team that's 5-10 and 10, uh, at this juncture of SEC play and has, you know, an important three-game series coming up this weekend against Vanderbilt. So what is sort of the, the state of the team and, and just how serious is this idea that they could be on the outside looking into the, the NCAA tournament? I mean, it's problematic uh, where Tennessee is right now. The, the prevailing belief, just, just looking first at kind of the season picture, Tennessee got into the NCAA tournament in 2019 with a 14 and 16 conference record. So did Ole Miss last year as kind of that last team in and they ended up winning the whole thing, obviously. Um, they were 14 and 16 in league play. So there's kind of a thought that you have to get to 14 in the SEC and 40 uh, as your overall win total. Um, and Tennessee has 23 wins at this point, five in SEC play at the midpoints. So you got another 15 games. So in theory, Tennessee needs to go nine and six uh, in the back half of, of SEC play to give itself a shot um, at being in that, that group. Problem is Tennessee has a three-game series with Vanderbilt, number four in the country, this weekend in Knoxville, um, they move on from that to a, uh, in the back half still, they close at South Carolina to close the regular season. South Carolina is number six. And frankly, they lost to Vanderbilt in the series this weekend, but they might be the SEC's best team, uh, SEC East's best team, rather. Uh, their offense is the SEC's best. Um, and that's just a heck of a unit um, in terms of their power hitting and everything. They also have Kentucky, number 11 in the country. So you've got nine of your final 15 games against teams in the top 11 in the country. And you're saying we need to go nine and six in that stretch to, to kind of reach that, that 14 win mark you talk about. It's not simply done. Um, and that's kind of why I wrote what I did after the Arkansas series is Tennessee has an uphill battle at this point um, to make itself a, a truly viable NCAA tournament team um, because you can't sit at five and 10 in, in the SEC with those teams left and say, going to make it happen uh, really easily. Now, the other series are Mississippi State and Georgia, who are two of the worst in the SEC. But Tennessee might look at those and have to sweep those 
and then go one and two in the other series to get to that nine and six mark. Um, so you're leaving yourself no margin for error. Um, a lot obviously could change with a good series against Vanderbilt. You go two and one in that series this weekend, you're sitting a little bit better um, than you feel like you are probably going into the series. But it's 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 a tricky situation uh, for Tennessee, especially a Tennessee team to enter the season number two. You you talk with, with Tony Vitello frequently, um, obviously. And what sort of feedback do you get from him? Uh, you, you know, in, in reading your your coverage, it seems like he's trying as much as possible to keep kind of an even keel approach at, at this juncture of the season. But what read are you getting off of him? And, and has he kind of been able to put his finger on why some of these problems keep cropping up with Tennessee, particularly as it as it pertains to some of the sloppy play we've seen? Yeah, I mean, he hit on toughness after the Arkansas series, which is the first time that's overtly been said. Um, but, you know, Tennessee's coming off two really, really good seasons. Uh, and I think you look back to 2020 and say that probably was going to be a good one too um, in terms of the talent that was on that that particular team. 2019 also was a good year, that breakthrough year. But this team is coming off groups that knew how to throw the first punch and then keep throwing punches, just to throw the sports cliche in there. Um, but that's really what they displayed. This team doesn't show the ability to do that. And they kind of show the ability to punch themselves, um, which is not something that, that you can have when your margin for error is as small. Um, I'm just thinking about, you know, slapping ourselves in the face or something here, but that's kind know, of what you're getting at. Huh? But, but when you look at just at the Arkansas series, Tennessee's in a good position in game one with Andrew Lindsay on the mound, making his first start for Tennessee, throwing well. Runner gets on to start the inning. Taylor made 4-6-3 double play ball. Maui Ahuna just doesn't catch Christian Morris toss to second. Ball goes into left field. Arkansas gets rolling, wins the game. Andrew Lindsay's out of the game pretty soon after. Um, a simple Little League level mistake. And that's kind of what I wrote is this team makes Little League mistakes. Because then the next day, they dropped a line out to left field starting the fifth. Chase Dolander gets chased that same inning after things kind of spiraled on him a little bit. Um, later in that game, Camden Sewell throws a pickoff throw to third down the line on a play where they should have had a guy, takes it from a 3-2 game to a 4-2 game. Um, you come back to Sunday. Tennessee has a pop-up to the catcher that spins back into the field. Drew Beam comes in off the mound to catch it. Zane Denton comes in from third to try to get there. No one covers third. Arkansas savvy players on the bases tag up and take second and third. These are things that you don't do when you're a fundamentally sound good baseball team. And Tennessee did that stuff at LSU. They've made base running mistakes, fielding mistakes. It's it's tough. They're they're not playing good baseball. Um, and when the margin is what it is, you can't can't do those things. Um, but in terms of day to day struggles, starting pitching hasn't been as good as it should be. Um, when you're talking about having multiple All Americans on your staff going to the year, um, Chase Dolander struggled. Chase Burns has struggled immensely. Um, in that second role, I thought the move this last weekend to switch up the rotation was really smart. I thought it was reaching a situation with Chase Burns where he had to leave the rotation. Um, and I really liked putting Chase Dolander in the Saturday role because that's the role he was in last year. And for whatever reason, maybe he does better after seeing the lineup for a day. Um, he threw so much better in that role. I thought that was really smart um, to throw someone else on Friday. And Tennessee had options. Seth Halverson, Andrew Lindsay, Camden Sewell are all guys that could have started Friday. Um, obviously went with Lindsay, but they're searching for answers and you see it. It's just not a great offensive team. The backbone of the team is the starting pitching and it hasn't been good enough. So it's, it's kind of been a, 
just a lot of issues kind of coming ahead at once. But I, I think underneath it all, it's just a team that isn't as tough and as, as gritty as what you've seen the past couple seasons. And you mentioned some of the the fielding concerns and just the the inexplicable blunders in a way. And, and that was the thing about, you know, their teams the past couple seasons, in particular, I'm thinking about last year. For all the, the hoopla and uh, some of the shenanigans that Tennessee fans loved and I think some opponents hated, the, the daddy had and the fur coat and, uh, you know, all this all this other stuff that the team became known for, like, I'm correct in saying that was a pretty fundamentally sound team last year, right? I mean, I, I felt like that kind of obfuscated all, all the all the shenanigans that the team would engage in. Some of that stuff kind of clouds the fact that like they were pretty they were pretty good fundamental team last year, were they not? Yeah, and two years ago they were a team that found ways to win. I mean, heck, I think of Max Ferguson made a play, I believe, in the Arkansas series or in the regional. I can't remember exactly when it was sliding play deep in the hole um, behind second, stopped a run from scoring, so he got up and threw home. It was a team that made those kind of plays. But you're, you're spot on. Tennessee had a 980 fielding percentage last year, which was w- right up there high up in the SEC. This year, Tennessee's team ERA is fantastic, but that's a horribly misleading stat because they're giving up unearned runs left and right. Um, Drew Beam, in particular, got crushed by that um, in a couple different starts now. Um, I think his LSU one. Uh, in particular, fit that uh, need, but you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a team that played good baseball. I think the only deficiency probably last year you saw uh, was they didn't throw out a lot of runners because they had a converted outfielder playing catcher and Evan Russell. They're not able to do that very well this year because they're in a similar situation. Um, but it's just not a team that that's playing clean baseball. And there's some of that where you say, okay, well, every single starting position player is gone. That's a lot of turnover for a team to endure. Most of them drafted. Um, that's a, a definite part of this, but at the same time, a lot of these guys have played baseball um, for Tennessee guys like Jared Dickey, Blake Burke got a good run last year. Christian Moore, Griffin Merritt's a guy that, that played a lot at Cincinnati. Zane Denton is a transfer from Alabama. Maui Ahuna at shortstop, who's been really disappointing uh, and is a highly heralded transfer coming in. So it just, nothing's come together uh, for this team where it's at. And that's kind of why they're in that spot of, Better figure something out pretty quick here. It's gonna gonna put it to be a pretty short uh, month of June. All right, very important three game series coming up against Vanderbilt this weekend. Mike will have the coverage over at KnoxNews.com. and again, uh, keep it over at, at Knox News uh, as well for Adams' coverage up in Cincinnati of those important uh, NCA hearings. Don't not expecting any any verdict. This week up in Cincinnati, it's it's not a court case where someone bangs the gavel at the end and, and a verdict is, is announced, but uh, everybody gets to make their pitch. Uh, the NCAA tries to get their questions answered, and then you know we would expect some sort of ruling on sanctions to come uh, a handful of weeks after that. But in the meantime, uh, Adam will be covering those, those hearings at knoxnews.com, and we will be back here with you next week. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Volunteer State.